You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 34 The Witchfinder General. Alice Stansby had in her secret parts two bigs, the one about the bigness of a straw and about half an inch long. And after that, the said Helen Mayer had taken that big and laid it upon her finger, it bled. And the other big was about a quarter of an inch long and a great deal bigger than the other, and blood did appear at that short big. The recorded testimony of the searches of Alice Stansby, suspected witch. She said, when the witch finders came into that neighbourhood, they had one woman under trial, who, she had verily believed, was innocent. But being kept long fasting and without sleep, she confessed and called her imp Nan. This good gentlewoman told me that her husband, a very learned, ingenious gentleman, having indignation at this thing, he and she went to the house and put the people out of doors and gave the poor woman some meat and let her go to bed. The recorded outrage that greeted the Witchfinder General at the parish of Horham and Aethlington. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft. We left off last time with young Rebecca West giving evidence at the trial of her mother and neighbours, who were rotting in Colchester Castle, and reciting to the court not the first, not the second, but the third rendition of her initiation into the witch cult. The fact that her testimony had drastically changed in time span, location, attendees at the Sabbath, and the events themselves mattered not one iota. The accusers of the Colchester Six were subsequently brought in to give their own testimony, after having been informed of Rebecca's new tale, and confirmed that it was all true. Also last time, we heard about the first of Matthew Hopkins and John Stern's interrogations, and the methods which would be a staple of their investigations. Depriving suspects of sleep, watching for their imps, pricking, isolated questioning with promises of lenience, Today, we continue the tale of young Master Hopkins as he claims the title that made him perhaps the most famous witch hunter in all of European history, the Witch Finder General. At this stage, however, the prime movers in the Essex witch hunt were not Stern and Hopkins, but were the magistrates that they had been assisting, Sir Harbottle Grimston and Sir Thomas Bowes. 
Around the time that Rebecca's testimony was being given to the court, they received word from the small town of Thorpe Lysoken. Overcrowded and isolated from neighbouring communities by sheer cliffs and sinking marshland, Thorpe Lysoken had been crippled by the economic fluctuations caused by the war, sending many of its residents into poverty. The message the magistrates received entreated them to visit the village and oversee the prosecution of a local widow, Margaret Moon. Moon, who had been evicted by her landlord after a prospective tenant offered significantly more in rent, had been accused of a range of crimes. The new tenant's wife was attacked by a horde of lice in numbers so vast that, quote, they might have been swept off her clothes with a stick, end quote. The brother of Moon's ex-landlord witnessed this, and claimed that the lice were like nothing he had ever seen, and certainly not natural. The other accusations levelled at Moon primarily included the murder of a neighbour's baby through poisoned apples. These neighbours, the Cornwalls, were the ones who brought this case to the attention of the Manning Tree magistrates. Henry Cornwall, the father of the deceased infant, hired two of the search women who had been involved in the investigation of the Colchester Six. Already we can see the value being bestowed upon those who were famous for their expertise in witch-finding, which will come up again later. En route to Fort Plisoken, one of the searchers was struck in the head and knocked off a bridge. She claimed that when she emerged from the river, she saw no sign of her assailant, and suspected that it was supernatural in nature. What's more likely is that she slipped, but hey, that would just be embarrassing. Better to say it was demons. When the searchers arrived in Thorpley Soken, Moon reportedly sneered, quote, Manning tree rogues, who the devil sent for you? Moon appears to have been much less amenable to the searchers than Clark had been, having to be physically stripped of her clothes when she refused to undress herself. The searchers subsequently found, quote, three long teats, or bigs, in her secret parts, which seemed to have been suckled recently, end quote. The searchers insisted that these growths were not just normal hemorrhoids, as they themselves suffered from them and so, supposedly, knew what they were like. Now, Moon seems to have caved to her accusers, agreeing to summon her imps if they provided her with beer and bread. They did so, and Moon dipped the bread into the beer, left it near a wall cavity, and called out their names. When the demonic imps did not appear as ordered, Moon flew into a rage and denounced her daughters as having stolen them, demanding that they be arrested also. When they were and the same growths were found on their bodies, one confessed only to having, quote, felt something come into the bed, around her legs, being at that time broad awake, end quote, after her mother scolded her for not doing her chores. Like in Manningtree, the women were watched over the weekend, with Henry Cornwall volunteering for the first shift. Something that vaguely resembled a rat, but gave off a horrendous odour, apparently dropped out of Moon's skirts, Moon then told her watchers to try and catch it, but oddly enough, they chose not to. Moon held out until Monday night, when she confessed to having twelve imps, blasphemous mockeries of the disciples, and named them. She confessed to the crimes she had been accused of, and many more. 
Moon and her daughters were to be held until the magistrates arrived, and they were taking their time. Over the next week, they stopped by two other villages after hearing rumours of other active witches. Alsrafud, in search for Mary Greenlife, and the neighbouring Wivenhoe, to order Mary Johnson watched until their return. Once Grimson and Bowes arrived in Thorpley Soken, Moon denied everything. She had never confessed to any of the accusations, nor had she denounced her daughters or attempted to summon any imps. Unfortunately for her, her neighbours unanimously insisted that she had indeed done all of this and informed the magistrates in detail. Perhaps the most interesting thing, for justices who were in the middle of Elizabeth Clark's trial, was that Moon had supposedly confirmed that she had worked with the Manning Tree witches. Here, Grimson and Bowes had evidence, however flimsy, of a witchcraft conspiracy that spread across the godly society of Essex. However, we can assume that the connection to Manningtree was included only because it was so well known. After all, the magistrates had only been summoned because of their known involvement, and so if the community of Thorpley Soken wanted to have their impoverished and irritating neighbour arrested, they knew exactly what to tell them. Through April and May of 1645, their work proceeded at breakneck speed. As word spread about the hunt, the magistrates could scarcely take a break on their circuit without being informed of some maleficium from a few days or a few decades ago. Circumstances now allowed for local fears and grudges to manifest. In Great Clacton, several women were accused, with the local vicar arranging for them to be arrested and prosecuted on his own initiative. The preacher, Joseph Long, was known as a greedy drunkard, and had been censured only the previous year for his failings. This aggressive action against the worst of all sinners, witches, was a significant boost to his popularity. Again, the witch-hunting further was such that the Manningtree searches were employed, paid from the parish coffers for their services. Grimson and Bowes travelled through Kirby Soken, Walton Soken, Wivenhoe, St. Asythe, and Grimston's own estate at the hamlet of Ramsey, with testimony and interrogations of multiple witches at every stop. The Ramsey accusations were dealt with in the nearby town of Harwich, a port settlement with a large amount of sailors, and it was here that the magistrates were joined by one of the Manningtree searchers. They were in turn accompanied by our friend John Stern, who found the trials of the Harwich witches, or Harwiches if you prefer, to be convincing examples of, as Gaskell puts it, diabolic familiarity. Whether suspects confessed or not, or if the searchers and watchers were successful in their tasks or failed, the departure of Grimson and Bowes was matched with the transfer of a locality's suspected witches to the dungeon of Colchester Castle. While the magistrates toured Essex, the War of the Three Kingdoms continued unabated, and Parliament was losing. Leicester fell to Prince Rupert on the 30th of May, a man we have learned previously was rumoured to have witches in his service. The Marquis of Montrose was successfully contesting the Presbyterian Covenanters in Scotland, while the King himself had free access to the Midlands and East Anglia. Naturally, the towns in the King's potential, and potentially vengeful, path were a tad concerned about their defences and the priorities of the municipal authorities were how many men under arms they could muster, and how they would pay them. 
Professor Gaskill argues that it was under this existential threat of physical attack that these regions most fervently tried to protect themselves from the metaphysical, and hunted for witches they suspected in their communities. Quote, Witches pillaged the neighbourhood, invaded the body, and besieged the soul. And the sense that victory in the field depended on godliness at home made hunting them feel part of the war effort, end quote. So far, we've spent all of today's episode on the Witchfinder General, not talking about the Witchfinder General. So, let us talk about the Witchfinder General. While Grimston and Bowes were on their own crusade, Hopkins and Stern had been at work. Joined by two other Manning Tree searchers, they had examined three suspects at the town of Langham, and called for the prosecution of a woman called Susan Went, and had both sworn to testify against another woman called Mary Sterling. Yet, despite the series of place names and suspects I have rattled out so far today, the geographical extent of the witch hunt was rather limited. Essex was divided into six divisions, and each of these divisions was made up of several hundreds, a geographical term that established boundaries for legal and military administration. Grimson and Bowes operated within the Tendring Hundred, so did Hopkins and Stern. At this stage, there were no prosecutions for witchcraft west of Colchester, and only one south of Chelmsford. Yet within the Tendring Hundred, which was itself made up of 12 communities, witchcraft accusations and prosecutions were rampant. In other words, the witch hunt was intensive, but not extensive. It was both catalyzed and inhibited by local politics and connections. While the magistrates had the authority necessary to work anywhere within their jurisdiction, Hopkins and Stern faced challenges due to their passionate but amateur status. This was no issue in those communities that welcomed them, but others took serious issue with their enthusiasm, notably within Colchester itself. Hopkins had visited six women in Colchester Castle in April, all from Manningtree and its locality. By June, that dungeon cell that had already been barely habitable was crowded by at least 30 more suspected witches. The numbers are unclear, not only because it isn't a simple matter to see how many people were transferred to the castle, but also because four of them died from the conditions. The coroner recorded their deaths as visitation by God, but Professor Gaskill asserts that they most likely died from either Yersinia pestis, better known as the bubonic plague or the Black Death, or typhus, the jail fever. Not only was public opinion in Colchester wavering due to the harsh conditions in the castle, but political factions within the city helped oppose the witch hunt itself. Alice Stansby, whose search I read a report of at the beginning of today's episode, was held for many months in the castle before being convicted of witchcraft, only to be later pardoned. The bill for this single prosecution was at least £1, 13 shillings, and 4d. Now, if you're like me, and you don't have an innate knowledge of the value of early modern English currency, Professor Gaskell converts this cost to over a thousand pounds in 2005, and argues that the opponents of the mayor, Robert Buxton, used this exorbitant cost against him, having Stansby exonerated and directly opposing the efforts of the witchfinders. 
Hopkins and Stern were prevented from questioning their other suspects, while Stern was even outlawed after he failed to attend a court summons to explain his actions. With Cromwell's victory over the king at Naseby in 1645, the Witchfinders now had a safe route home to Suffolk, just as their public approval in Essex was beginning to tank. And so to Suffolk they went, with searches in tow, arriving in either late June or early July of 1645. Over the next month, 50 towns and villages would offer up 150 men and women to the Witchfinders, as the county sought to purge itself of political and religious dissidents. As Hopkins and Stern crossed the county line into the familiar countryside of Suffolk, the legal situation they found themselves in was likely foremost on their minds. So far, the Witchfinders had been operating under the legal authority bestowed upon them by the magistrates Grimston and Bowes. Stern had been given a warrant to investigate the Manning Tree Witches, and they had exploited this legal umbrella far beyond its original limitations. Now though, they were in a completely different situation. The warrant had only been valid within the Tendring Hundred, and Hopkins and Stern had not only left the Hundred, but the County of Essex itself. Worse, the kingdom was at war with itself, and a group of strangers travelling the lands without appropriate authority to do so was just asking for trouble. They potentially faced accusations of espionage or banditry. It was around this time that Hopkins seems to have been referred to as the Witchfinder General, although whether this was a title he claimed for himself or was retroactively attributed to him is unclear. Professor Gaskill writes, quote, It is tempting to think that the Witchfinders had obtained a more comprehensive commission from higher up the chain of command, such as that procured by Dowsing from the Earl of Manchester. Contemporaries certainly came to believe that Parliament, or a representative thereof, had appointed Hopkins an agent with a commission to discover witches." End quote. The Dowsing that Gaskell refers to was the travelling iconoclast William Dowsing, who toured the region reforming, or vandalising depending on your point of view, the Laudian churches that he found. Gaskell often links the godly motivations of Dowsing with the godly motivations of Hopkins and Stern, and it's easy to see why. Whether or not the Witchfinders had the correct papers, it was of paramount importance that they pick the right places to offer their services. As Colchester had shown, a legal warrant wasn't worth the paper it was written on if the local authorities were opposed to their work, and so Hopkins and Stern prioritised communities where both the public and the elite were zealously opposed to witchcraft. In Suffolk, this seems to have manifested particularly against suspected royalists and Catholics. Where Essex was fairly unified in its Puritanism, Suffolk's Presbyterians, while still dominant, still had to contend with unorthodoxy. Here, the witchfinders divided. Hopkins, younger and without ties, went to the east of the county, while Stern took the west, where his travels rarely took him far from his family home. Hopkins' chosen route was around 300 miles, and appears to have been one long journey. I had originally intended to follow Stern's travel at this point, but it would be mostly a list of names and places, and confessions of a type we've heard many times before. 
One notable event from his travels that is worth a mention is the first male confession of this hunt. Men had never been considered safe from the temptations of the devil, but were generally seen as more morally robust than women. A legacy of Eve, many preachers thought that women were more vulnerable to sin, passionate, and sexual creatures, whereas men, of course, were stoic and calm 100% of the time. We only have to think back to the very first episode of the podcast, when we looked at the Malleus Maleficarum and its horrendous gynophobia to see an extreme example of this line of thought. Despite women facing the vast majority of witchcraft accusations, men were also accused and convicted in significant numbers. Yet so far in the East Anglian trials, every accusation has been levelled at women. So it was quite a change of pace when Stern, visiting the town of Long Melford, was approached by Alexander Sussums. Sussums is noted by Gaskill as being of, quote, modest means, and who came to Stern in order to be searched out of guilt. This was a novelty for Stern. All previous searches had been on women, and so conducted by women out of decency. Stern appears to have undertaken the examination himself. Sussum directed him to his marks, and confessed that he had been suckled by imps for 16 years. This was enough for Stern, and the witchfinder ordered Sussum's arrested and prepared for trial. Why Sussum's had been so forthcoming is a mystery, although Stern later noted that Sussum's had been freed. So, to the witchfinder general himself. After parting ways with Stern, Hopkins' first port of call was most likely the town of Chattisham. Here, he heard the confessions of multiple witches. One described having sex with the devil, who was deathly cold to the touch, and of using her newfound imps to murder her first daughter, then her grandchild. A husband and wife team of witches were also arrested and interrogated, while an individual who was possibly their son fled to Connecticut in the New World after their trial. From Chattisham, Hopkins moved further east, into Ipswich proper and through its surrounding communities. At each stop, new claims abounded and more work was to be done, with the associated costs from local parishes going towards the keeping of Hopkins and his entourage. Eventually, the witchfinders arrived in the village of Framlingham, the ancestral seat of the Howard family, the region was a hotbed of Catholicism and recusancy. The Howards had been religious conservatives during the reign of Henry VIII, with the patriarch and his heir going to the block after fears of a Catholic restoration upon the king's death came to a head. Framlingham Castle was where then Princess Mary had declared herself queen, in opposition to the Protestant Lady Jane Grey. Her sister and eventual successor Elizabeth had turned the fortification into a prison for religious dissidents to her settlement, while James finally returned it to the Howard family. It had then been sold by the Howards to a Puritan, who in turn bequeathed the building to Cambridge University. By the times Hopkins arrived, the castle was falling into ruin, its keeps and walls being cannibalised for building materials while the well had run dry. Yet. Keeley, the castle's moat was still full. Framlingham was a community under stress. Not the first one we've seen so far, but notable for its circumstances. There was little land and few jobs for the residents. 
and in 1642, the area became the destination for large numbers of refugees fleeing the war in Ireland, straining the lack of opportunities even further. The Puritan, who had once owned the castle, had ordered a workhouse built within its walls to help provide employment. But it wouldn't be built until way after the Restoration. The wealth disparity between those within Old Framlingham, within the ancient Saxon ditch that surrounded the area, and those outside of it, was substantial and growing. It is worth noting that all the women suspected of witchcraft and brought to trial from Framlingham lived in poverty outside the ditch. At least six women, and possibly as many as twelve, were accused of witchcraft and interrogated. Witches from other communities were brought to Framlingham Castle to be swum in its moat, and some of the local witches may have enjoyed the same fate. The ordeal by water we have covered before. In this case, to be innocent was to sink, while the guilty floated no matter the efforts of those conducting the ordeal. It's worth pointing out that this wasn't a sign of early modern stupidity like it is often portrayed. It wasn't the case that the ordeal by water was a death sentence. Either you drowned but were judged innocent, or didn't drown but were then executed. Those being tested were tied with ropes and suspended across the water before being lowered. In the case of sinking, it was a simple matter to be pulled back up. So not particularly pleasant, but not just a death sentence by drowning. What is certain is that in addition to the usual methods of searching and watching, the suspects were also made to pace up and down rather than sit in one place, further exhausting them and making them more likely to break and confess to any crime. The confessions at Framlingham roughly follow one of two paths. Either a poor woman is approached by the devil himself, seduced, promised love, wealth and power, and then left with nothing except diabolical burdens, or they were first approached by small animals like mice or beetles that are later revealed to be imps, whereupon the devil appears and the same process occurs. Professor Gaskell suggests that it was genuine guilt catalyzed by the extreme conditions the suspects were forced into that led to their bizarre confessions. These suspects were regularly attending church, and so were taught all about how God was judging them on their thoughts and actions. To read directly from Gaskill, quote, Every week in church they were reminded that God looked into their souls and judged them against the commandments painted on the walls of the nave. Dreams could be demonic invasions, Evil thoughts projected to cause harm. The result was guilt, especially in women. A burden of fear, failed responsibility, and spiritual vulnerability. And no guilt was more acutely felt than sexual guilt, in the chasm between the ideas of chastity, modesty, and love on one side, and the reckless insistence of desire on the other. In the confessions of these women could be heard the lament of age for vanished youth, yearning for intimacy and kindness, indulgence in heart-fluttering seduction, and abandon, end quote. Hopkins travelled from Framlingham to Swiffling, and from there to Great Glemham, investigating local suspicions as he went. It appears that the suspects from these communities were all sent to Ipswich for trial, where Nathaniel Bacon, a close friend of Hopkins' father 20 years previously, was the magistrate. The jail at Bury St Edmunds was already full, while small village tollbooths often hosted at least one suspect to try and lessen the burden of the larger institutions. 
The Assizes season was close at this point, only a few weeks away, and before Hopkins could attend those in Suffolk, both himself and Stern had been summoned back to Chelmsford to give evidence. En route back to Essex, Hopkins did not rest. Why waste the opportunity to do God's work, after all, especially when he still needed to eat? Stopping at Rushmore, he confiscated a knife from a witch's home after she openly considered taking her own life before she was brought to trial. While at Halesworth, a cooper called Thomas Everard confessed to being forcibly made a witch, having then married another witch, and raising their children to also be witches. When they became grandparents, they murdered the child. The tale at Halesworth was dramatic, an entire family on both sides of the marriage either confessed to witchcraft or had been victims in the confessions of others. At the parish of Horham and Aethlington, however, Hopkins came across some opposition. He had conducted his business as usual, received a confession, and made arrangements for their prosecution after his departure. The residents, however, began to kick up a fuss at both the bill the witchfinder had presented for his services and over the prospective innocence of the suspects. When asked after Hopkins and his searches were expelled, she claimed to have no knowledge or memory of ever confessing, so brutal was the supposedly gentle questioning, and explained that she had a chicken she sometimes called a pet name, Nan, hence the confession. I read an excerpt of their complaints at the beginning of today's episode, and while it really does sound like the sort of gossip you hear from your grandmother, it does show how important it was for witchfinders to have the local authorities on their side. The opposition of just one gentry's family could throw their whole work into doubt. In the third week of July 1645, the Chelmsford Assize was brought into session. The authority that had been sent from London to prosecute the session's business was not a circuit judge as was usual. The judicial process was expected to be upheld by professionally trained justices with decades of legal experience on commission from London, judges who knew what kind of evidence was acceptable and what must be discarded lest the innocent be found guilty. What had changed was the war. The conflict meant that, instead of the legally trained circuit judges, the Chelmsford Assizes in 1645 were to be overseen by the Earl of Warwick, a man with a complete lack of legal training, but a strong parliamentarian fervour. He was an opponent of Laudianism, a patron of Puritans, and Lord Lieutenant of Essex. He no doubt knew his way around a battlefield, but he was completely lost in deciphering the legal minutiae that was required in a trial like this, where witness testimony was the only evidence. For the women on trial, they could not, in their wildest nightmares, have imagined a worse arbitrator of their fates. That is where we will leave off today's episode. I can only apologise for the delay in this episode. July's been incredibly busy, and I've been struggling with a nasty cough, which has made recording this episode really difficult. So if you've heard a difference in voice quality, that might be why. I hope to finish the tale of the Witchfinder General before August, although I'm away again this coming week, so no promises. If I don't manage to get an episode out in time and you're hankering for something else to listen to, I'll just remind you that I am a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. There are some fantastic shows on the network, but this week I'll recommend that you listen to Brandon Newberg's Dead Ideas, The History of Extinct Thoughts and Practices. 
everything from serfdom to self-mummification, Joseph Tito to uh, witchcraft. Dead Ideas handles the bizarre, the unusual, and always the fascinating. So go have a listen wherever you find good podcasts, or go to recordedhistory.net to find all the links there. As always, thank you to my patrons, The Hammer of the Witches, executed today, Witchfinder General Michelle G, my Inquisitors Elaine D and Trish G, and all of my demonologists and theologians. They are all wonderful people, and you can join their ranks by going to patreon.com slash historyofwitchcraft. Besides supporting the podcast, and me financially, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or the IMDB of Podcasts, Podchaser. It all helps grow the show, and gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling when I see the download figures grow. You can always drop me an email at witchcraftpodcast at gmail.com, or message me on Twitter, or on the Facebook page, at Hist of Witch and the History of Witchcraft Podcast, respectively. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.